Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. Great to have you here again. And in today's episode, we continue our series on the basic nature of the Christian life. We began the series a couple of weeks ago, noting that in the New Testament, at least, the Christian life is often described as a matter of faith, love, and hope. And we noted that we don't always use these three categories quite as commonly or frequently as the New Testament itself does as a summary of what it means to live out the Christian life in response to the gospel. And so we're looking at each one of these three massive concepts. Last week we looked at faith, and today we move on to love. But before we move on to love, I just want to reflect on a couple of things that I missed out last week. I think the French call it l'esprit d'escalier or something like that. My French is non-existent. But I think the phrase means something like the wit of the staircase. It's that thing you wished you'd said, the clever thing that you wish you'd thought of at the time, but only thought of after the conversation was over and you're on your way down the stairs. And after last week's post on faith, I had two of those sort of moments of recognition. One I thought of myself and one that was pointed out by a friend. After a comment from a friend, I really wished in last week's episode I'd made more of the fact that faith in a word of promise is the character of the Christian life because it's the character of the God that we relate to. He is the covenant-making, promising, speaking God. And so the primary way we relate to him, shockingly, is by accepting and trusting his word. And I kind of implied this at various points in last week's post, but never actually came out and said it or made very much of it, which on the staircase leads me kind of shaking my head a little bit as to how I managed to not think of that. Because making the connection between God as a speaker and our response of faith is really valuable. It's important because it helps us to discern some false trails or false versions of how the Christian life unfolds. It helps us see, for example, that Christian experience, the Christian life, is not mystical That's what it would be if God was a force or a wordless power that we felt our way towards. Nor is the Christian life lived by sight, as if we needed to see miraculous signs or see God represented visually in front of us in some idolatrous kind of fashion. And nor is Christianity a prosperity cult where the God we serve is a kind of capricious, non-communicative power that you have to please in some way in order to be blessed. Christianity is none of these things because the God of the Bible is personal and verbal. He reveals himself by speaking. And that's why the primary way we relate to him is by trusting what he says. So that's a point that I wished I'd made more of. And there's a second one that's related to that. We not only trust his word, but we speak back to him in words. We talk to him. That's the second thing that I thought of on the staircase, almost immediately, in fact, after I pressed publish. Perhaps the most important implication of faith as the foundational virtue of the Christian life is prayer. Prayer is really faith put into words or verbalized. It's our trust in God spoken out loud in the midst of life. As we call on him, as we make our requests to him, cast our cares on him, and generally express the fact that we are dependent upon him, that we trust him in everything. And so faith is strengthened, not only as we hear the word of God and listen, but as we respond in prayer, as we exercise that trust by asking God 
for everything in life. So there are a couple of things that I wished I'd included in last week's post, and when I revise these posts into a little book about the Christian life, which I'd like to do in due course, these staircase thoughts can be included. They won't be completely wasted. But enough of apologies and corrections about last week. Time to think about the second virtue in our triad, the virtue of love. And because love is more complicated than it first appears, it's going to take a couple of painful truths to cover it even moderately well. And so this week is part one, and I've called it The Two Loves. Well, we're familiar with many usages of the word love these days, of course. I'm loving it. Love your work. Love what you've done to your hair. I love my wife. I love golf and lazy Saturday mornings. Or as Tina Turner put it, what's love but a secondhand emotion? If faith, as we saw last time, is a sort of saggy middle-aged word that's put on a lot of weight around the middle, what are we going to say about love? It's so bloated with meanings and associations and cliched sort of usages, it's really hard to recognise anymore. And perhaps this is one reason that we don't talk so much about love these days as the summary and capstone of Christian living, even though the Bible does repeatedly. Maybe for us it just feels a bit too vague and soppy, like a soft focus picture of puppies on a 1 Corinthians 13 poster. In fact, if we do want to be biblical and talk more about love, 1 Corinthians 13 illustrates some of our problems. Because just what is love in this passage? We're given lots of adjectives about love, that love is patient and kind, that it's not arrogant or rude or resentful. And we're told the kind of things that love does. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things and so on. And also what it doesn't do. It doesn't boast. It doesn't insist on its own way. But given all these adjectives and these things that love does or doesn't do, what exactly is love in this passage? We're fond of saying that love is an action, not a feeling. And given the general romanticisation of love in our culture, that's a fair enough thing to say as a corrective. But love is not really just an action in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is certain things and does certain things. It seems that love drives action and is seen in action, but it's not really reducible to being just an action. So what would we say? Would we say that love, therefore, is more of a feeling or a sentiment? Well, that doesn't quite work either, certainly not in 1 Corinthians 13, because feelings don't act, they just are. So love seems to be something else, but what exactly? Perhaps love is a description of attitude or of character. For example, when we say that someone is a laid-back person or has a laid-back character, we're describing something about that person that sort of sums up that aspect of them. Their habitually relaxed way of acting, their easygoing orientation to life, their chilled kind of way of responding to things. Is that what love really is? Is it a cumulative description of someone's character, someone's habitual way of being or acting? Well, that seems a little bit closer and to fit with 1 Corinthians 13 a bit better. But there are still a few problems. For example, a description of someone's character 
is a summary that's kind of seen and evaluated from the outside. It's seen after the fact. We observe people doing certain things, behaving in a certain way over time, and we say, yes, that makes you a laid-back person because of certain things I've repeatedly seen you do. But what are those certain things in relation to love? What sort of actions, repeated over time, would lead me to describe you as loving? What, in other words, is the defining characteristic of love, of an action, the repeated performance of which might lead me to describe you as having a loving character? Defining what love actually means or requires turns out to be quite a bit trickier than first appears. Incidentally, as that terrible movie Love Actually itself illustrates in the confused kind of claptrap that it goes on with in trying to say what love is. Of course, we are hardly the first people ever to struggle with what love really means. In the history of Christian thought and ethics, there has been considerable debate about the nature of love, both God's love and ours. In particular, the debate has often been about the relationship between two loves, two kinds of love, that are captured or expressed in the two Greek words eros and agape. Is love fundamentally a desire or a longing for something, that is for something good, that's kind of eros-style love, or is love primarily an unconditional benevolence that acts for the sake of others, regardless of whether they are good. And that's often described as agape, kind of love. Now, as a little sidebar here, it is a linguistic mistake, I think, and it's characteristic of the word studies movement that was very popular during the 20th century. It's a mistake to think that the word agape means God's unconditional love for the deserving, as if all the concepts or reference that are associated with agape in the Bible can be loaded into the meaning of the word itself. There's a bit of a linguistic problem there. I won't go into it in any detail here, but just to say that in the history of the discussion of love, this is how it's been conducted with these two terms often being used, and so I'm reflecting that in this episode. But just beware of that linguistic problem. Now, where was I? Two kinds of love. Love as eros, that is, as desire or longing for something, for something good. Or love as an unconditional benevolence towards others that acts for the sake of others, regardless of whether they are good or even if they are not good. Now, as gospel people, we're immediately drawn to the second alternative as the better one. Because true Christ-like love, we would say, loves the unlovable. God's love for us in Christ is not drawn forth by our goodness or our lovableness. In fact, quite the opposite. God's love is uncaused by us. It's spontaneous. God's love is seen in giving his son to die for his enemies, for those who are dead in sin. Now, the Lutheran theologian and ethicist Anders Nygren is well known for having argued that this agape-style love of God is true Christian love and is the opposite and antithesis of eros style love. Eros is a desire for something that I value and want. Eros, argued Nagrin, is therefore self-centered. It wants something for itself and is therefore sub-Christian. True godly Christian love, true agape love, according to Nagrin, doesn't correspond to the goodness 
or value of its object, it creates that goodness and value by loving it unconditionally and God's love for sinners being the prime example. Now this sounds quite good, we might think, but there are some problems there. Because think for a moment about our love for God, which is of course the great and first commandment to love God with all of ourselves. Does our love for God have no relation to the goodness of God? Do we just graciously decide to love God unconditionally, as if there is nothing good about God himself that calls forth our love? That doesn't sound right at all. Or for that matter, what of other good things that we rightly love in the world? A husband's love for his wife, for example. Does my love for Ali have nothing to do with any qualities that she possesses? Now, I know, of course, that I must lay down my life for her, as Christ does for the church, regardless of whether she deserves it at any given moment. But when I tell Ali that I love her, should I kind of add a little rider to the declaration? Should I say, of course, there's nothing at all objectively good or attractive about you that makes me say that I love you. It's just my gracious decision to love an otherwise unlovable object. Well, this doesn't sound quite right either, not to mention the fact that it would very likely result in cold shoulder and burnt tongue for dinner for quite some time. Now, we can see why Nigren wants to make love something that's independent of desiring or wanting, desiring the good, because that does seem to be how God loves us. But his approach doesn't seem to be an adequate explanation for what love is as a whole. In fact, if we overemphasize the unconditional nature of love, the spontaneous nature of love, and say that it has nothing to do with the goodness of its object, then we find some other problems emerging as well. Situation ethics, for example. Now, if you haven't heard of situation ethics, it's an approach to ethical thinking put forward by Joseph Fletcher and others that suggests that a benevolent love for others should be the sole driving force of our morality, not rules or laws of behaviour. Now, this is a very modern and very recognisable ethic which basically says, just do in any situation whatever love drives you to do. So, for example, if you judge that it would be more loving to leave your marriage, in which you are both unhappy, and shack up with somebody else, with a net total increase in love and joy all round, then go for it, says Situation Ethics. Don't let an old-fashioned thou shalt not commit adultery stand in your way. The problem with Situation Ethics is that making unconditional love, the sole criteria for action, just kind of kicks the can down the road. I may have an intention to love, and that's all well and good, but how that is expressed depends on more than having that intention alone. It requires me to make a judgment about the situation and what sort of action would be loving action here and now. It requires us, in other words, to think about what would be good in this situation and not just to have a motivation or desire to be loving in a contentless kind of way. Love, in other words, can't exist entirely within me, within the subject, like a kind of undifferentiated beam of kindness or affection that just flows out onto everyone around me. It also must have some connection to who or what I'm loving, some reference to its object, 
to some good that we are seeing or perceiving or seeking in the situation or in the thing or the person that we're loving. Love does have some connection with seeking the good. And therefore, you would say, some connection with desire or wanting the good. But then we're kind of all the way back to the beginning and the problem of God's love for the ungood, for people like us. His gracious and self-sacrificial love for the undeserving. How does that work and how do those two fit together? And how does all this talk about the nature of love relate to faith? Faith is the foundational virtue of the Christian life, we've suggested last time. And as Galatians 5 says, faith is worked out in love. Faith somehow seems to generate love or stand behind love. How does that work? What is it about love that makes it dependent in some way on faith? Well, dear listener, so many questions. But having hopefully helped you see the nature of those questions and the problems associated with understanding love and cleared some of the ground, we might be ready for some answers. And we'll come to those, God willing, in next week's Painful Truth. Well, sorry to leave you with that cliffhanger, but there was really no way to deal with all of this in one episode or post, so that was the best way and place to break it up. And also apologies that we've skated over all kinds of very deep waters in today's post and missed out some interesting things that we could have observed. For example, the idea of love being more about desire has made a bit of a comeback in recent times. Very popular writers, at least in theological circles, people like Charles Taylor and James K.A. Smith, they've argued that as people we have driven far more by our desires than by knowledge and rationality and persuasion, and that accordingly, people will come to know and love God not so much through preaching and rationality and arguments and persuasion, but through a much deeper change, a kind of sub-rational change in what they want. And so a new and growing love for God will be achieved, as Smith suggests, not so much through rational persuasion and preaching and so on, but through people being schooled in a new set of desires through the habits of Christian worship and liturgy and so on, will come to love new things, in other words, to love God, by practicing wanting and loving them over time. Now, there is, of course, some truth in this, but there are also some significant problems. It's definitely true that our desires and our knowledge reason often do work in different directions and we are much more than just rational beings we're not just thinking machines and we are fallen and complicated and we don't always respond to reason in fact we are often driven by desires or preferences that we can't easily explain or that even run counter to what we say we think or what we know to be true but what Romans 7 describes as a wretched state, that is, of our desires and our knowledge of what is good and true working in different directions, Smith seems to accept as kind of the norm, as the unchangeable norm that we just have to work with. It seems that the sword of the Spirit, that is, the Word of God, doesn't have much power in his conception to make any impression on the human heart, which is just dominated by desires. And the best we can hope for in that circumstance is just to train Christians, kind of like circus animals, to want something different. But of course, that something different that we are being trained to want is not contentless. 
just as desire is never contentless. It's always and inevitably based on some perception of what the good is, even if that perception is inarticulate or not very well formed. And if the thing that we're desiring or wanting is a person, a person who is only revealed or known as he speaks, then desiring or longing for or loving that person can never be separated from listening to him and knowing him as he really is. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll come back to these questions of love and knowledge and how the gospel is the foundation of love next time. Well, as always, thanks for being with me and thanks for your constant communication and interaction over the ideas that um, come out in The Painful Truth. Perhaps you have some thoughts about this post that will provoke some more staircase moments of realisation for me about the nature of love. Uh, do get in touch. You can send me an email at tonyjpain at me.com or if you're on the website, if you go across the text or newsletter version of The Painful Truth, it's to be found at thepainfultruth.online. You can just leave a comment there in the comment section. I really do I love to hear from you and benefit enormously from the interaction, and I hope you guys do as well. Well, thanks again for listening. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.